Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're talking Excalibur number 88, Dream Nails, part one in a three-part story starring Pete Wisdom and Kitty Pride doing spy stuff and other stuff, and also Pete Wisdom smokes a lot and Moira's coffee is terrible. We really can't emphasize those important plot points enough, just can't, <laughs> and neither can this comic. Excalibur number 88 was originally published in August 1995, and the creative team is Warren Ellis on writing, Larry Stroman, Derek Gross, Ken Lashley, and Jeff Moy on pencils, Cam Smith, Derek Gross, Tom Weggerson, Philip Moy, Don Hudson, and James Palmiotti on inks, Joe Rojas on colors and Digital Chameleon on color separations, Letters by Comicraft, and Suzanne Gaffney and Bob Harris on editing. What are you doing? I'm gonna tell you how to save this ship. Out here? I can't stay. I gotta get back to history. What? You gotta rescue it. Wait, listen to me. The ship's been caught in something called the Devil's Triangle, some kind of time warp, a rift in space. Are you crazy? You know Einstein, right? He predicts the theoretical possibility. He also predicts an atomic weapon that will destroy the world. Yeah? So what? If you don't go back and convince the crew of this ship to turn the ship around and head back into the Devil's Triangle, everything Einstein predicted will become true, except for the outcome of history. So if I don't turn the ship around, in all likelihood, I won't exist. Neither will you. So in case we never meet again. Welcome back to Our Son Pete, a weekly analysis of what makes Pete Wisdom the greatest mutant of all time, or at least the most remembered member of Black Air who wears a tattered trench coat and sometimes has hot knives for hands. I kid, someone beat us to the concept of a Pete Wisdom-centric podcast, but it feels like one lately over here, and we're leaning into it today for reasons that will become clear shortly. But who are we? Starting with myself, I am Dr. Anna Papard. I like to talk about sexy, gendery things in comics and pop culture. I teach comic stuff at a couple of Ontario universities, and I am the co-project lead of the Twitter project. Project Sequential Scholars, where we, but mostly Andrew, are currently revisiting Claremont's early 2000s return to the X-Men franchise. I am also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. That job's pretty easy this week. He's not in this comic much, so instead I'm going to commit my energy fully to investigating the important case of Pete Wisdom's missing nipples. Moving on, Mav, please relate your origin story. Are you really not a fan of, of Jago Marak or, 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 or Threadgold? <laughs> The, the other members of Black Air 
the fine, <laughs> fine members of Black Air that we've that we've all memorized and that I did not just look up just to complete this joke um, for this podcast uh, because because everybody's a big, huge Black Air fan and has been for a long time. That said, I'm not, but my name is Christopher Maverick and call me Mav, and I am <laughs> I am a teaching professor of, of, uh, of digital narrative and interactive design and popular culture at the University of Pittsburgh, I'm the host of this show and another podcast called Vox Popcast. And if you and if you look hard enough, perhaps a third podcast called the the Ground Pod Day <laughs> podcast, which which is just a one day podcast that like that only appears once a year and, and might have appeared, you know, I, I guess as you listen to this like two weeks ago. Um, but and I'm also I'm a huge fan of Larry Stroman, so so okay. this is interesting because I because I'm a big Larry Stroman fan. I don't know this is his best work, um, but I actually don't know that it's not his best work. I think this might also be a symptom of there are 47 artists on this book once again and yeah. and we're back to doing that again so there's um there's panels here where i'm like i'm a big larry Strowman fan and this doesn't look like his pencils or his inks so i don't know who drew this i'm also a big ken lashley fan not his work either so so i i feel like this might be one of those books where you know everybody gets to draw one stroke of a pencil and then you pass it on yeah. kind of a, like, yeah. a, like a like a like an imperfect corpse of, of, oh of an artwork God. class yeah it's a, it's a frankenstein's monster this comic yeah. uh <laughs> i had no trouble yeah, piecing that together exquisite corpse yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> um andrew please reacquaint us with your tropes uh, in terms of the pod, my main trope is Megan deserves better, but I'm right, so that's cool. Uh, I'm Dr. J. Anderman. She's there. She's there. <laughs> Co-project lead for sequential scholars and a lecturer at St. Jerome's University, where my class was studying Katie Keene comics today, which makes for oh, a jarring but not oh, undelightful so cool. transition to talking about Kitty Pride as Dana Scully in Excalibur. And I have it in my notes specifically, prod Mav to talk about Larry Stroman, because um, Mav has nice things to say about Larry Stroman. Oh, that's nice. We already, yeah, we already got into that a little bit, and I'm sure today's guest will have some thoughts as well. So let's go ahead and introduce him. So we're joined this week by a man who's certainly got a solid claim to being the biggest Pete Wisdom booster on God's Green Earth. The pod is delighted to welcome Dan Grote. Welcome, Dan. Hello, hello. Very happy to be here. We're so happy to have you. I'm hoping some of our listeners already are aware of your podcasting endeavors, but we'll give them an intro to you anyway. So Dan Grote is a newspaper editor by day, a comic site editor by night, and in the temporal spaces between, he co-hosts WMQ&A, a weekly comics creator interview podcast with his longtime best friend, Matt Lazowitz. As part of the Patreon for that endeavor, he also hosts a monthly bonus podcast called Our Son Pete, in which he is going <laughs> issue by issue through the comic appearances of one Peter Winston Wisdom. He He's been waiting for this moment since 1995. Oh my goodness. So Dan, we know each other a little bit. I like to think that we're friends, but we haven't talked about those important things that friends should talk about when meeting each other, which is what is your comics origin story? When did you start reading comics? Do you have memories of, of that formative time in which you first fell in love with funny books? So I remember as a kid having, you know, like a handful of G.I. Joe comics, but I'd say my real gateway, unsurprising for my age cohort, was, you know, somewhere between the Marvel Universe Series 2 trading cards and the X-Men animated series. You know, they, they're what really got me curious about the comics. So my first X-Men comic was uh, X-Men Volume 2, number 20, which was a deep end issue for a beginner because A, almost nothing happens. It's a uh, post-arc quiet issue, and it ends with a reveal that there's a second Psylocke 
who was not in the cartoon, and therefore I didn't know at the time why I should care. <laughs> and yet somehow I kept coming back for more. <laughs> <laughs> Poor revanche. <laughs> that is so there was like a lot of convo like a few days ago on twitter uh, like one of the ex-twitter folks was doing a thing of like what was your first x-men issue and everybody's first issue is something wild that makes no sense and yet somehow they kept reading <laughs> well let, uh, what particularly draws you to x-men though like what keeps you reading these comics all these years later uh so yeah this let me think a little deeply actually so growing up my mom was an avid soap opera fan she had just okay. dozens of those blank VHS cassettes that she used to record General Hospital off the TV. So I think ultimately I connected with the, the ongoing soap opera elements of the X-Men and it made me better understand her fandom as I cultivated my own, which is nice. Oh, I like that. How do you read it as a longtime reader? Like, do you conceive of these things as like a continuous ongoing story or do you kind of segment it in your mind? You can do it both ways, really. I mean, there's definitely a, a fairly long gap period in my readership. I could say that, you know, X-Men comics ended in 19, early 1999 and they started up again in, let's say, 2017. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes I read those comics in between and I'm like, yeah, no, that's definitely what happened. That's the truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Makes sense. Well, I want to talk to you more specifically about Pete Wisdom, but I'll do an intro question for you, which is like, what made you start doing the Patreon Pete Wisdom podcast? You know, what's the experience been like going back over his history? What made you want to do it? So that was something I came up with as an attempt to create, uh, as you said, you know, Patreon bonus content for the, the mother podcast, uh, WMQ&A. Uh, I basically decided, you know, I love this character. I know this character. I could do a deep dive series on him and probably have fun doing it, you know, once a month and keep any potential guests entertained, hopefully. So, uh, so far over 13 episodes, that's held true. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I had the pleasure of, of getting to chat with you about Pete on that podcast. Well, I think the episode that I was in, Pete appeared in like three panels of the actual comic. It was a very <laughs> Pete Wisdom light. Uh, episode, but we did have a little bit of a chat about him. Okay, well, I want, I want to, I want to get talking feet with you. So let's do the issue summary, and then we'll come back and talk about that right afterwards. <laughs> I've been finding I've been having a lot of Pete thoughts now that we're like onto the Pete Wisdom era, and what better person to talk about it with? Okay, so I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We'd never put our gross bare feet on your computer console while smoking and haphazardly throwing sludge coffee out our mouths, but hopefully that goes without saying. Still, just to prove how nice we are, here's a plot summary. Excalibur number 88 opens deep within a super science laboratory where a guy or a creature is held inside a science tube wearing a scary containment suit. There's talk of siphoning bodily fluids and biting through containment suits. More on that later. From there, we head to Muir Island where we learn that Pete Wisdom is not a morning person. While his coffee heroically tries to escape his mouth, he tells the computer to connect to the answering machine at his London flat. One message is from a friend named Cully requesting private medical attention. Pete asks Brian if he can borrow the midnight runner. Brian, exercising sense, says no. Lucky for Pete, Kitty's bored and agrees to fly him to London and the runner, ostensibly to keep an eye on him. Meanwhile, Moira talks to Xavier via video link, discussing the exciting business of computer network security protocols. Apparently, Chuck's bad at that, because when he wiped his own databases to prevent the phalanx gaining access to the legacy virus info, he also deleted his security suites, leaving Moira's networked computer vulnerable to hacking. Chuck tries to shift the blame by asking how much Moira really knows about Pete Wisdom. Elsewhere, Kitty and Pete land in London. 
They find Kali's hideout in Soho. There are files scattered across the floor and a message scrawled across the walls that says, I'm losing my body, but no Kali. Back on Muir Island, Brian informs Rory Campbell that he's finished constructing a laser room to punish people for hostile actions. I'm sure this won't backfire at all. <laughs> Moira, meanwhile, is having fun with holograms, letting everyone walk around in giant projections of the legacy virus to explain its different strains. Back in Soho, Wisdom interviews a charming young lady who saw Kali looking unwell. Kitty, meanwhile, examines the papers that Kali had littered throughout his apartment with designs of religious writing in crop circles. Me thinks she's been watching a little bit too much X-Files. Then Pete takes Kitty to a spy bar where a guy called Doyle says Cully was security chief of a base codenamed Dream Nails. Another guy tells them Cully is dead in the Black Air morgue at Whitehall. So they go there next and find Cully's dead body a little worse for wear, but the coroner doesn't know much. When they leave the morgue, they're attacked, but between their phasing powers and ninja skills and hot knives, pride and wisdom manage to take down their would-be assassins. Pete pulls an ID card off one of the assassins and gasp, he's a member of Black Air. Wonder what's going on, huh? All right. First impressions goes to our honored guest first. Dan, you've obviously read this issue many times, but rereading it for us now, what are you particularly anxious to talk about? Or do you have a memory of reading this for the first time? Take it in whatever direction you want. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, yeah, so uh, I actually reread this not too long ago because we had covered it for our son, Pete. But, uh, you know, I think the big thing talk about with this issue is the art. Uh, you know, obviously we've had uh, a lot of jam issues lately. We will continue to have a lot of jam issues uh, for at least the next few months. You know, the, this whole arc is such a multi-artist mess. And yet, in the middle of all that, Larry Stroman is out here doing his best, we can argue that point, uh, you know, and I, and I love him for it. You know, this is this is a Pete Wisdom that has found the gym on the island and, and did not skip shoulder day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I also think it's worth it's worth talking about the lettering because, you know, we're in that period now where Comic Craft is lettering everything and trying out all the fonts in their candy box uh, for good or ill. Yeah, I was wondering about the behind the scenes stuff, because I'm not as much of a person who knows about the industry side of things. But I know you are, Dan, and obviously you are too, Mav. So like, what was going on at this time? Like, were they contracting things out to these kind of companies? Is that why we get the thing about Chameleon and Comic Craft here? Like, what is the deal with Comic Craft? This is this is a big period for almost seemingly as soon as you get back from the Age of Apocalypse. Digital, they start to experiment with digital coloring, and mm -hmm. they start working with this font house. Uh, called Comicraft, founded by uh, Richard Starkings. And so right, right. You'll, you'll find, you know, on a lot of these comics that they start getting very experimental in those two areas that, you know, don't always often get, you know, <laughs> noticed when you're reading comics. Some of it can be grading, especially I think in this issue, there's too much trying to play with giving characters their own unique bespoke caption boxes and things. Mm. But eventually over time, you know, it all sort of, evens out. Was there like a financial reason behind this or was it just sort of like a startup company that was just like trying to make inroads? It was 1995 and my understanding is I mean we're we're talking pure finances, right? Marvel especially is not quite to the point where they're bankrupt yet, but they're on the road down. So if you know yeah. comics history, like Marvel Marvel has a has a literal real rough 10 years in the post image explosion where there's where there's a point where they've got all the market share in the world and they have no money and it get and so you're cutting costs left and right while still trying to wow people with holograms on covers and and expensive paper and frankly 
it's cheaper to pay someone to type words in every book than it is to t pay someone to handwrite them. Yeah, and that so was my sense. So yeah. Yeah, so lettering lettering became one of the first things where you could, you know, you could really you could just really crank through and like, hey, we could just design a font. It's way faster, it's way cheaper, and that's that's just the way that it's going to be. Also, though, when you first jump into a new technology, there is sort of um, there's an inclination to sort of, I guess, embrace the technology maybe more than you should. And just like, what can we do? So it gets chaotic because you're they haven't learned to do more with less yet. So there's there's a lot of fonts. There's just yeah, that just that, that first just page fonts are happening a lot. Yeah, was yeah. angrifying. I was like, oh, yeah, I had to zoom way in and I was just angry. Yeah, they're <laughs> like fonts were happening left and right. And and, you know, that's a choice, I guess. As someone who's done it, and, and again, my handwriting's awful. So when I did my webcomic, I did type. And you do want to give, like, since every individual character is the same by the nature of doing a font, like if you type an A, it's the same A each time. You do want to, like, add some variety by kind of playing. There's an inclination to play with the fonts a little bit and try to add some character to the work in a way that, like, maybe you can't just by just typing. But you can also, you can very quickly overdo that, as is evidenced in, you know, this. <laughs> I like you like should how you should never be aware you should never be aware of the letter like the letter should be something that yeah. um that adds wow. a lot of character to the book and that you and just seamlessly seamlessly fades in and that is not uh, the case here i just find it like i never thought i cared about lettering until i started to like get involved in people's debates about hospital panel by panel and strip panel naked like it's just uh -huh. so divisive how he does lettering and i'm just like, I admit that I have stronger feelings about it than I thought I did. <laughs> I, was like, I shouldn't feel the letters. They should just be there, you know? Like, I just have an opinion about it, and I didn't know that I did, but I do. <laughs> but respect, respect. <laughs> but anyway, uh, let me pick up a couple more first impressions. Um, how about you, Andrew? How are you feeling about this one? I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. I, I, like, I, I, It does still feel like Pete Wisdom took over Excalibur, but as I said last time, I think there was a lot mm -hmm. to lose at this point, and yeah. he, he's got a lot of new energy to it. The one thing that I was kind of fascinated by, though, was just in terms of my reading versus your reading. Anna, you've mentioned it as like um, a spy caper between the two of them, almost like a man oh, from uncle yeah. kind of thing. I read this mm -hmm. as um, X-Files, uh, yeah. as I said before. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I'm finding it kind of fun to sort of figure out the incongruity between our two readings because I can totally see yours. Um, but I also like, like it's such a Scully Mulder dynamic in a mm -hmm. lot of ways for me. Yeah. And then there's a little bit of Constantine in there, as we talked about before. So it, it does kind of feel like Marvel was just quick what's popular now. Make Excalibur that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I felt the Constantine influence a lot. I think it's just I was never really an X-Files person, so I didn't pick up on that. And then I read Austin Gordon's like write-up of the issue, and it was like, oh, this is so yeah. X-Files. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm an idiot. Of course it's X-Files. I just didn't really think about it. So that explains a lot of it. I'm well more, way more versed in spies than x-files so i just went that direction with it but yeah definitely definitely very x-files which debuted a couple years before this comic mm -hmm. yeah it, it becomes more blatant text in the following issue uh issue right oh yeah it, it, i mean but but that's but that's the, but the early wisdom last issue spy, was very right? spy yeah. yeah i mean 
<laughs> I don't even know how spies. Spies in comics are weird. I feel like it's a genre that should work well in comics, and yet it hasn't often worked well in comics for me. I think uh, it's just there's something because like spy-fi should be a good fit for comics. It's got the sci-fi element and everything. And yet, you know, I've read a lot of James Bond comics and they've never, well, including ones written by Warren Ellis, and they've never quite clicked for me <laughs> because they'll start, they'll try to do spectacular action, but it's just so much of a spy story isn't actually about that. Like even when you're doing a spy-fi story, like so much of it should be about atmosphere and character relationships and just stuff like clothes. Mm -hmm. And then... Yeah they'll do a story about James Bond that's just like a superhero story. And I'm like, although there's big action set pieces in James Bond, he's not a superhero to me. And I just, mm. there's an incongruity there that I haven't read that many spy comic books that I've really thought have been successful for me. So I'm not sure. Like Supernatural Investigator, sure. I mean, that's Constantine. I think that works really well in comics, but like, I don't know. I hesitate to say there's as, so it's 1995 now. And I think we're, we're very quickly losing the difference between what is a spy, what is an investigator and yeah, what that's is, true. And, and what is a superhero. X-Files starts in 1993. The first season of X-Files is a very different show than the eighth season of X-Files. Um, if you're, if I don't mm. know, like Anna's clearly not a fan. I don't know if the other two of you are X-Files. I don't want to say it goes off the rails, though it does. It's more that it yeah. it very much <laughs> it goes from a kind of quirky, you know, because they they sort of they're FBI agents. So they're investigators. But there is a very much spy and espionage sort of aura to it for the first season or two. And then it very, very quickly becomes more about investigating far more about investigating the paranormal instead of just the weird. Like, because early on, it was more we're looking into the weird stuff and, you know, and and there are a lot of, you know, one of the greatest characters from from X-Files is the cigarette smoking man, which means nothing to Anna, but he's a spy. That's the oh, I, you know, I, you know. OK, when I yeah. say that I'm not into a pop yeah. culture thing, I mean, I've read essays about it You've and seen it. several right, episodes, right. talked to many people about it. I'm familiar right. with these characters. Yeah. Well, but, he, but, he's, but, he's, but he's a spy. Right. And that's and that's what the show is and what makes the show work. It work a lot is that it's a it's a mashing of genres and i feel like the whole pride and wisdom relationship which i again i've, I've said on the show before i actually like it but this is the beginning of the relationship as a romantic relationship and it really feels like someone watched x-files and said yeah let's do that we'll just do that yeah, that, that exactly. works <laughs> and it and it and it really and i don't think it's exactly that because the relationship between kitty and wisdom it's different than the than the Fox Mulder and Dana Scully relationship. They are very different characters and the romance happens way, way faster. Um, and that's one of the things I want to talk about when we get into, you know, in delving in here. I think it is stealing the vibe, but only on a very surface level. And that could have gone very wrong. And it just so happens that Ellis was a talented enough writer to like sort of make his own story. But it very much is a hey, people are into that show. So so why don't we do that? It just I, I don't see how you can view it any other way. It was a top 10 show at that point. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we're going to do one of those. We're going to do an X-Files. And the only X-Files episode that I think I watched while it was like on television was like one where I think they go back in time and they're on the Titanic and kiss on the Titanic as it's sinking <laughs> or something. This is an episode of X-Files. I swear <laughs> to God. I swear to God. <laughs> and like, 
like, I was like, oh, this seems like a good relationship. Maybe I'll get into X-Files. And I was like, oh, I see. They're not really a couple. And I, I was not going to watch it for that reason. I was like, oh, okay, like, I'm going to have to watch like seven seasons of this will they or won't they? And it's not going to. And I'm like, I totally get, I totally get why it's maybe not a good idea for them to get together, but I'm not into a will they or won't they indefinite. I'm like, it's got to go somewhere for me. So I was out. I, I can't deal with that. I'm just being honest. If, if I, <laughs> There's been 11 seasons and it does not go anywhere. <laughs> Yes, I know. <laughs> it does. I mean, I'm, I'm, make, I'm making fun of a show that I actually like. Yes, you are correct in in that the will they or won't they overstays its welcome on on the X Files. It's like they're like they they have a child together, and you're still wondering if they're going to ever hook up. It's you're like, mm, all right. <laughs> I saw the first movie too. I'm not joking. I, I... <laughs> yeah. anyway. I'm not joking. They li- they literally have a child, and then they continue, and then they continue doing the. But are they a couple? Yeah, yeah, they're a couple. Stop. Yeah. I, anyway, <laughs> I'm I'm over that trope. But um, Dan, did you have X Files thoughts before we talk about Pete a little bit more? Uh, you know, I, I I'll just say that you know, as somebody who watched probably the first six seasons of the X-Files, you know, before it turned into like a real ship of Theseus situation and yeah. they just replaced the uh, yeah. uh, cast and everything. But, you know, I, like I said, I, it, it definitely becomes more obvious in the next issue, like hit you over the head obvious when Pete's walking around saying the truth is out there. But oh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, they're clearly getting, they're clearly developing a banter with each other. So you've got that. And if you're not going to call it, you know, X Files. You could call it Moonlighting. You could call it Sam and Diane. You know, pick your pick your favorite uh, from that trope. You know, one, as soon as we meet Pete's work friends, that's we really realize that's where it's going with the aliens and the. You've got Mulder and Scully. You've got assistant director Skitter. The only thing you don't really have yet is the lone gunman. They appear in a different story. I, yeah, sorry, I got distracted <laughs> thinking about. I was like, oh, Bantry couples, and I was like, I've been thinking a lot about Remington Steel lately. Ah, <laughs> I was like, you know, <laughs> I was like, Lucifer's basically the same show as Remington Steel. Theory of mine. Anyway, um, moving huh. on. Uh, yeah, that There's a lot of parallels. Off, off. Yeah, okay. A lot of parallels. I'm a big Remington Steel fan. Less of a you know, mm, okay. Mm-hmm. I see where you're going. <laughs> okay. I'm going to just drop that for people to discuss after the pod. Um, <laughs> let's talk about Pete Wisdom a little bit more. So I have been, as I said, like excited to have Pete. It has been a like shot in the arm for this book. I'm happy to have a new character to talk about. He's a hilarious character in a lot of ways, but I want to hear about your affection for him, Dan. Obviously, you post- podcast about him every week, so I've heard your thoughts a little bit. I've read your primer, but, but tell us, as his unofficial PR manager, give us your Pete Wisdom pitch. <laughs> so the options you gave me... Uh when you sent your notes over were great, terrible and uh, great hyphen terrible. And I feel like that third <laughs> one uh, is, is pretty, pretty accurate. You know, Pete is in that very nineties school of broody snark, brooding snarky wounded wolf that gives us, you know, Wolverine gambit grifter, John Constantine, as we've said, you know, he's got the attitude. He's got the powers that are largely there to assist in violence. He's got the the backstory where random characters can come up to him, spit in his face and say, I still owe you for what happened in Sydney or wherever. <laughs> but but for some reason, he was the version of that archetype that spoke to me. You know, maybe it was because at 15 or at 16, I was obsessed with Monty Python on the Holy Grail. And I thought, 
you know, Wolverine was missing a dry British wit. Uh, you know, I, I don't think Pete is fully formed at this point, but we're getting close. And, you know, when really in, in, in just an issue's time, when we start to interject the it needed doing philosophy that later shows, oh, he's a good person, actually. He just likes smoking and hates Moira's coffee. You know, he becomes the thing that Ellis uses to make this era of Excalibur make sense to him and ultimately the reader. Well, how does Pete relate to some of those other characters that we keep like comparing him to? Like, I mean, he's Constantine, but he isn't. We've been talking about X-Files, but it isn't. You know, we've been talking about some other spy things. I mean, what kind of sets Pete apart for you? I think it's the banter more than anything else. You know, this is the issue where we start to see him actually open up a little bit and form a bond with another cast member. You know, he spent the previous two issues just being a dick telling people to sod off not putting the cigarettes out you know this is the first time somebody actually spends a little time with him gets to know him you know you're not on his side right away you're probably not going to be on 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 his side for you know another couple of issues but this is i i think the turnaround this this arc is the turnaround for the ellis run Mm -hmm. i think this is where he kind of says this is the kind of stuff i'm trying to do now that i'm not you know running with it with Scott Lovedell's plot or playing with this weird Age of Apocalypse bridge story. Yeah, I mean, I've been curious about the context for Pete as a character who's critical of intelligence agencies and how, you know, that's often used as a trope to like make us sympathetic to a character because they're a spy, but they're not a spy because they're critical of it. And so they can be like an insider and an outsider at the same time. And Pete's kind of got that going for him. But like, yeah, I don't know. Do you have a take on that aspect of the character, Dan? Like, is that part of part of what makes him appealing? Because he's not like a self-reflexive character, but he is like one of those author surrogate characters who kind of reflects on what's going on a little bit, I think. He 100% is. You know, I think his very first scene back in issue 86 tells us a Mm -hmm. lot about the character, more so than like the next whole next two issues do because we see him in this village he clearly has done a mass murder but he's also <laughs> racked with pain of guilt this is the thing that makes him say you know i don't think i want to play spy anymore i want to go do an x-files with these uh, spandex types for a little bit you know i think his whole arc and and you see this really brought to bear later under paul cornell is that you know he's good at spycraft there are definitely elements of British spy machinery that he disagrees with, but when he is given the room and the space to do it his way, that's when he starts really racking up the victories. But you've got you've got to wait till like Captain Britain and MI13 to get to that. Yeah, you put the okay. you put the, the the vampire story top on your list, I think, if I recall, or maybe up there on the list. Yeah, <laughs> I was. <laughs> I don't know, Matt. You had thoughts on that? Go ahead. Well, follow up question. So, you, I mean, you talked about the you know that the issue eighty six uh, appearance, and one of my notes for today is I like this Pete wisdom. This is where I actually start becoming interested in Pete wisdom because I feel like the Pete Wisdom who appears in Excalibur number 88, this issue, you know, has a character. Whereas I feel like the Pete Wisdom who appeared in Excalibur 86 a little bit, but definitely in Excalibur 87 was, okay, we need a trench coat type. Can we get a trench coat type in this book? <laughs> and and that's like, I don't feel like he had much going on. You know, he was a tortured soul. Yeah, I guess there was the murder, but really it was because he's wearing a trench coat. Like, that was how much (laughs) 
thought. Like, I mean, it, it really was a lot of, you know, you've you've read Hellblazer, you know how this works. Like, or or you've seen Gambit, you know how this works. Or, you know, like that's that felt like what they were doing. And like a, you know, just apply what you know from the other trench coat guys and just move it over here. And he feels more unique here. Like he feels like he's got Yes, he opens the first time we see him, he has just committed a genocide and then he feels bad. And I go, okay, but I don't know who you are. So why do I care about this? And then here, even though he's not being actively tortured by that for this, at least not for this issue, I feel like he's got a personality that frankly kind of came out of nowhere for me. There's the line where Nightcrawler says, oh, but you, I think it's, um, no, actually, is it Brian that says it or is it or is it Kurt? I think it's actually Brian. This is, you know, but you hate him. And it's like, does she, though? Or is she just annoyed with him because he's an ass like everybody else is? Like, I don't know that I even felt like Kitty hated Pete in the previous two issues, just so any more so than anybody else did. He was the jerk that's just kind of there and giving orders because he's a trench coat guy here. And here <laughs> yeah. I felt like there's more of a there, there's more of a relationship where I'm where where I'm going oh, okay, they're doing they're doing banter. So I guess they're going to be a couple someday because I know how I know how well they want they worked. But like, at least I see that they're doing something and that he is interacting rather than just brooding because trench coat guys brood. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it worked a little bit better for me because I liked the mystery of it. Like I thought that that opening page that sets it up and then you don't know what happened or why or if he's a good guy or a bad guy because he like killed all those people, but he's very sad about it. So like you're like, huh, what's going on with this guy? So the mystery worked, I think, for me. And then here, because I was thinking a lot about well, like, well, what makes the introduction of a new character interesting? Because this is so hard to introduce a new character to like an X-Men franchise with all of these other characters that have been around for so long and not have it just feel like a poochie situation which it kind of is in this case yeah. but at mm -hmm. the same time I think I mean I'm going to speak to the skill of the writing again that it's like he inserts just all these little nuggets right like the thing where he's checking his messages and it's like oh he has all of mm -hmm. these people that he knows and like that are asking him for favors and stuff and then when they're in Soho and he's like talking to the girl outside the club and they go to the spy bar and it's like oh he has all these different associates like in different social registers that can relate to all these different people and you get a sense of like the bigness of his life beyond what we've been shown and that makes you intrigued right you're like oh all these little pieces it's like sort of filling out a context for this character without giving us all of the pieces to it and I think that that you know regardless of your mileage on the character I think that that's pretty effective as a way to introduce the character you know what I mean I don't know Andrew how are you feeling about Pete in this one is he growing on you at all um I think as a character I'm still finding him as you just said kind of forced and cliche in a lot of ways yeah and I know and that's not who he is like he, he gets he gets much much better so so I'm still kind of grappling with that irritation factor but the thing I love about him <laughs> is is he's advancing Kitty you know what I mean? Oh, okay. She, she's been so stuck and having Pete to play a foil. And yeah, cast Kitty as Dana Scully. That's kind of cool. She's got the skepticism sort of woven in already. So I, I'm really enjoying what, what Pete does to, to Kitty as a foil. I, I think that's that's where I'm appreciating him now. And that's great because that's a that's a good that's a good hook for getting me to tolerate a character that I'm kind of not enjoying innately um, and giving them time to develop and get better exactly for the reasons you said because it's really hard to launch new characters in the X universe especially ones who kind of take over a book when they first arrive I think it's just I think it's just fun though because it's like I don't 
know. It's just like that shit disturber factor because it's like this book had been stagnant. Like I was starting to not even, I mean, my passion hasn't been there for this book the way I would like it to be. Like certainly not since the Davis era ended. I mean, I love doing the podcast. Of course I do. And there's been issues that I've enjoyed. But at the same time, like the opening of this issue with Pete just coming in there and putting his feet on everything and just like dropping coffee everywhere. And like, what the hell is he wearing with like the underwear? And like, is he wrapping his trench coat over the underwear? What was that? I don't know. Is it a garbage bag? What's (laughs) happening? And then it's just so (laughs) like, it's again, like it's the shit disturber factor. It's just like, he's coming in, making a mess of things, doesn't care, like telling people to saw it off. And I'm like, honestly, we needed this injection of energy. Like again, like him or hate him. I'm just almost mad or uh, not mad. I'm like, almost happy at the chaos that he's introducing in this space because we just we needed something because it had been stagnant you know yeah 100 percent. it's a poochie but it's a poochie that works <laughs> right it's a good way to look at it <laughs> i mean it's funny when i've been like tweeting pete pages and like people are so like some people are all like yeah that guy <laughs> it's like, i think it's like either you have to like Oh, i don't know i don't want to say anything bad about x-men fandom but it's just like there can be a sanctimonious to x-men fandom sometimes in terms of like we don't like characters who aren't good people you know because that's like been so much of the discourse around beast lately like people have been like oh i hate that guy and i'm like i really like beast as a character he's a bad yeah, person but he's a good true. character right like i Ryan. think that, I, I think people don't like change it's not so much the because mm. wolverine has been the most popular x-men character for decades true. now and this he's not true. a good person even under i mean even under the best aspects of wolverine in the in the most endearing fatherly wolverine care version that you can possibly write under uh, whether it's claremont or anybody else dude is still a mass murderer you know, like, like, like that's, yeah, that's who that's he true. is. And, and I, I, and I mean, I like people, that... people love Emma, even though she is very much not right. a, Emma... a pure right. person. Right. <laughs> I, I think that, I think that it's a, there's an inclination in long-term fandoms of which the X-Men is one, but like the same thing happens when, you know, when, whenever you, you take too big a swing on Superman, when you, you know, or, or anybody, right. Like if it's a long-term fandom, or you know soap operas too people don't like when you upset the status quo too far away from like you know the the mythic ideal that li- that lives inside their head right and for for beast <laughs> and i actually really like what they're doing with beast and Krakoa issues right now i i find him far more interesting than i have in a long long time so but that's because i wasn't caring about beast right but like for other people if they take a big swing and now you don't recognize your favorite character whoever that may be it's really hard in in this case i think with with x factor with excalibur you are hitting a point where andrew is not wrong pete wisdom is this dude who didn't exist before two issues ago and now he's the main character yeah yeah, yeah. he's not he's not just poochie he's cable cable walked into new mutants and became yeah. the leader and that's what pete wisdom's doing this is not you know megan hasn't had a line in like four issues not really <laughs> Um, you know, like n- not anything substantive. Kurt is in this for a second. Brian's in it for a second. Rachel's dead. And even with like with your Farons and your Micromaxes, whom we didn't like, they didn't take over the book. Pete Wisdom came in and he's like, hi, I'm your new main character. 
This is, you know, and I'm going, and I'm going to, and I'm going to be, and and soon it's like, and I'm going to be dating the girl you have a crush on. So, you know, get on board, you know, <laughs> like that's, it, it's a lot to swallow. So if you don't like it, if you, you know, if you're married to the idea of Kitty and Rachel or Kitty and, and other Peter, right. Or, or Kitty being 13, if you're married to any of those ideas, Pete wisdom is super disruptive. And I get that. And, and I, and I, I just, I don't think there's a way around it because the book had become stagnant. It really had. And that's kind of what, when Anna was complaining about. So, so he is an injection of life, but it might not be the life that everybody wants. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, so much of, the appeal I think that's coming across to me is it's a little bit of a fucking attitude because it's just like again mm -hmm. like we weren't yeah. doing anything so you might as well just be like fuck it let's do an x-files because like what were we doing before like we were doing and it's really good phalanx covenant I mean, covenants yeah yeah, yeah it's you I mean it's better at being through at you mm -hmm. yeah I think that I mean this issue and the next few chaos and art aside I think this is better than being the number five X title, which is what they were. Like they were the fifth tier X-Men book. Like when you look at like the issue with Phalanx Covenant where where Forge is the main character, someone who's, <laughs> who's, who's you know, who's <laughs> appeared in this book for one page ever and he's just suddenly the main the main character one issue and then he's going away this is better than that this is yeah. this is trying to tell a story and not that not that we didn't have stuff to talk about on that issue but that's what happened literally like four issues ago we just yeah. didn't we just did a feature on forge you know so mm -hmm. this is not that well let's talk a little bit more about the tone because we already were talking about that about the x-files the spineness of it and i want to talk about stroman's art i mean it, it feels like inappropriate to call it that because we have clearly so many artists working here but like his artists. distinctive style i think is still mm -hmm. evident here like in some of the some of the better pages certainly so i was curious he's about clearly doing here. breakdowns too he's yeah. clearly this is this is a larry Stroman designed book if nothing else yeah that's fair. like there's that's a reason there's a reason his name's the biggest so how are we how does that like kind of supernatural spooky like investigator tone kind of coming across here i mean i thought a lot about that opening scene which you know is creepy as hell and you get all of those intriguing weird medical details that you're like what the hell is going on here and like some of the stuff that's threaded through like the you know like i'm losing my body on the wall and everything and then like the mutilated corpse anyway i'm answering my own question but i'll put it to you dan <laughs> like how does how does this comic kind of conjure that creepy supernatural tone? Like what kind of moments or like elements of the style stood out to you? I mean, I, you know, I, I think you called it with, you know, that the opening splash page is effectively a cold open to a one hour TV drama. You know, it's, it's dark. It's, it's scary. It's got kind of opening of a saw movie vibe to it. You know, suddenly we're in sort of like a alien grindhouse horror thing. And, you know, we're also in a Larry Stroman comic when we're used to being in a Ken Lashley comic or, you know, probably more accurately, a Ken Lashley comic and a couple other guys who Ken Lashley and are good, who can mimic Marvel House style on Deadline. You know, mm -hmm. Stroman is a lot more distinctive an artist. Stroman was the guy who did the first few issues of the, you know, the government X Factor team. And he's coming in here and he's distorting everything. He's, you know, distorting faces and bodies. He's giving us these London streetscapes that are, you know, full of all these sort of wonderful, wonderfully bizarre and varied looking bodies. Like he's, he's doing the work to create a vibe that even 
Lashley, who does draw a few pages of this issue, you know, isn't really measuring up to like he's the one that's giving this book its its tone and style yeah yeah i agree with that yeah i mean i was i had mixed feelings about it at times because you know that thing that he does where he distorts faces like it works when it's background characters and you're sort of like oh like look at all these kooky characters in this space but then it was hard to tell the intentionality of it because again it shifts so much because of the many hands on this issue so it was like sometimes pete Mm -hmm. has the wide eyes and sometimes not mm-hmm. and then that inconsistent modeling maybe not sure what they were going for so i had feelings i'm not sure he's he's definitely not as jacked in a suit as he was drawn shirtless at the beginning of the issue <laughs> i will say that <laughs> anyway andrew go uh, ahead well just, just one thing outside of stroman because i i really love stroman as well and, and i'll take even diluted stroman um that, that makes me happy um, one thing I would point out that I was kind of fascinated by artistically is that this is a really iconic cover, despite being low concept and kind of minimalistic. I find that fascinating. Like this cover really works by Lashley, but like it's literally just two characters standing beside each other in like a, like a two shot. Why do I like this cover? And I, I still don't know. Um, well, you know, we talked we talked earlier about like the mess with lettering, and that's evident on the cover too. Oh, I mean, boy. if you really look at it, this is a TV guy cover. Mm-hmm. This is a TV Guide X Files cover. Cover. Yeah, it's Mulder and Scully back to back, and then it's mm-hmm. telling you, you know, where to find the feature inside, plus the grid and the crossword puzzle, and all the fonts. Yes, whatever all the fonts, fonts you have, all we're going to use all of them. <laughs> all fonts for Donna. We got it. Yeah. <laughs> so many. I mean, like one, two, three, four, five, at least seven. <laughs> mm-hmm. It'll have you saying, "What the hell, Vetica?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, if you if you include the indicia and everything, like it's it, there's a lot there. Like every font is on this cover. It, it is it is absolutely amazing. And then you've got like you know, like if you look in if you look in the the subtitle, the unknown is their specialty, and they're playing with kerning. They've, they're stretching letters. And, you know, let's do some bolding here. Uh, there's there's so much when in you know, graphic design is my passion. Is it's very much it's very much <laughs> what's going on here, and I. <laughs> And I, <laughs> it works for me. I, I, I can't help it. Why? Part of it's because I think that, no, I, I don't think I could do it in, in long doses. I think what makes it work is because, and maybe I'm giving, being fair. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm obviously I'm a Larry Stroman fanboy, right? Like I tribe is a great book, all four of them. Um, and, and, <laughs> um, Stroman has this sensibility that was special to me in the 90s because it is the it is the heyday we are in the extreme era we've talked about that on the show before we are in the in square in the middle of hyper real and Strowman says to hell with all of that Mm -hmm. i'm just gonna be a graffiti artist that is clearly capable of doing the hyper real image style when he wants to and by the way tribe was for he worked for image um so he can do the hyper real when he wants to and then sometimes just doesn't and it can vary from panel to panel as the panel needs it and he is doing you know mcleod always said the power of comics is in its ability to be expressionistic and he is doing that in real time with utter abandon just when he needs to and um this one is weird because there's clearly like you just get to the some panels that are clearly just not drawn by him at all because they don't have any of that sensibility and the anchor has shifted and there's like way too much detail and hair to be mm-hmm. like the um to be the you know the style that is Strowman and the characters like just 
when Kitty and, and Wisdom are flying on the on the plane, those aren't his panels. They're he didn't do those breakdowns. Yeah. They're not like nothing about that says anything that he had anything to do with it. And then like you know, but two or three panels earlier, when Brian is just like, "Hey, I am going to do the bird's eye view," and Brian is all pet. That's that's what he is. He's all pet. That was that my favorite panel. That was my favorite <laughs> and that, one. You know, and then like, you know, a few panels later when they're, I mean, a few pages later when they're wandering through the London streets and you've got, you've got this one woman who's in the foreground. She's just an extra. She's nobody, but she's got Afro buns and she has the build of olive oil, but rendered in a photorealistic <laughs> style. And I, I just love everything about what he's doing here. He is having fun with it and he is sort of giving character to the drawings with a cartoonist sensibility, which, you know. Let's face it, when you know, when you start reading your first comics, not when you come your when you say is your your comics origin story, which which you know, we all talk about the first time we picked up an X-Man or something. For most of us, our actual origin story of comics is probably like, you know, the Sunday paper when we're three and we see a blondie or something, right? Like or a family circle, a circus. Like those things I, I think there's that sensibility to it. And I love that about Strowman. Also, um, if you ever meet him, he's super nice. He's just such a such a chill dude. He's really cool. So because um, I've just I've had chances to like talk to him at cons and um, and Todd Johnson, who co-created um, Tribe, nicest guys in the world. They'll just you know, they have nothing better to do. Like, I'll just talk to you forever. But I I just really appreciate what he is doing as a storyteller, even though as a storyteller first rather than an extreme artist first. And that was refreshing for that era. Yeah, I liked the I liked the Brian top down panel, and I liked the one where Pete Wisdom was talking to the woman too, and he did a great angle there with like the bodies kind of like foreshortened and like heading up, almost like they looked like fashion illustrations. I like some of those expressionistic gestures a lot. But um, can I ask? This is still this is still a question about visuals, though. I'm going back to the cover, but it's not just the cover; it's like in general because I wanted to ask Dan about Pete Wisdom's fashion. So. One of the questions I had about this cover was like, Pete Wisdom is wearing the waistcoat here, which I'm just like, that's very fancy for him. I'm not sure. <laughs> how do you how do you feel about that choice? And I wanted to ask you about the torn trench coat too. Like, what's going on with the torn trench coat as a rhetorical device, Dan? Uh, I think what's going on is uh, Ken Lashley, who did the cover, has not changed Pete's clothes since Genosha. And right. so his trench coat is still all torn up from getting hit with live rounds, or maybe it was the skin bullets. I, I don't remember. But uh, <laughs> this is a, a theme going forward where they'll just keep him in messed up clothes. You know, Pete mm -hmm. does not get a fancy spandex outfit of unstable molecules at any point. He just, you know, if he needs new clothes, he's not always near the men's warehouse. And that is, he's mostly off the rack here. I mean, Ken's doing a nice job on the cover, but I think that's because it's the cover. You have to put on your nicest ripped to shred suit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just curious about that because it's like well what does that say about him as a character you know because it must be something that Ellis is writing into the script like it must be something that's like important to him like the way Pete dresses and you know the fact that <laughs> his clothes often being distressed is like part of his character so yeah I was just thinking about that a lot in terms of like I don't know his refusal to be part of this superhero space you know his denial of his spy role as well because he also refuses to dress appropriately for that role and like what that might say about him 
as a character. I don't know. I had I had our friend Monica Giraffo and her theories about superhero fashion in my head a little bit because the pants he wears on that cover are funny too because they don't have um, a fly. <laughs> it's like he's wearing Chippendales pants. <laughs> Just, just like oh, it is. Yeah. Just, they must tear at the side because there's no opening at the front. <laughs> so, like, tear away I know, and I mean, I know that's not on purpose, and just like a superhero yeah. comics artist sometimes struggle to draw realistic clothes. Problem, but still, I was like, I had my, I had, couldn't. No, no, head can accept it. <laughs> you can do tear away pants. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, I'm Ken, you probably it. had a black pair of Hagar's or Dockers hanging in your closet if you're looking for photo <laughs> reference. <laughs> All right. That's like a final topic. Let's talk about Kitty and Pete a little bit. Like, I've been having a hard time approaching this topic because I actually don't have trouble talking about this relationship, but I feel like it's so contentious among fans. I'm always trying to, like, be careful with how I talk about it. And, like, we already did our whole episode on the Ellis thing. We're not going to, like, revisit all of that stuff here. I'm sure it'll come up again in other specific specific comments we're gonna have on the pod but i don't know now i feel like i put you on the spot dan but like what's your read of kind of the kitty and pete relationship like what draws these characters to each other you don't have to think it's good that they're drawn to each other but what is it that draws these characters to each other pete is not the best match for kitty but you know that's that's okay you know that is okay people can be in bad relationships it's fine exactly he's cool for the summer of 95 um (laughs) you know i i think it's part of it is you know he's the new character you know he's he's ellis's self-insert how do we make him make an impression he has to attach himself or or work his way into the good graces of one of the members kitty for so long was the reader surrogate so you know in, in some ways you have this, not marriage, because that does not happen, but hooking up, I guess, between author surrogate and reader surrogate. And I, I think that's, mm. that's part of the appeal there, if you find an appeal there. Uh, well, 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 I was just thinking, we'll, as we'll soon as you that said way. that, I was like, well, that's that's totally where the controversy comes in though, right? And like, I mean, again, yeah. I'm, putting Ellis, I'm putting the Ellis stuff to the side, but I mean, even like with people who, I don't know, I just think so much of it has to do with people's feelings about Kitty as a, as a reader surrogate, you know? And I think it has to do entirely things, with that. And people want certain I think things it's for Kitty and then, and not her. well, yeah, I know. And then like the new guy coming in and we know he's like, mm-hmm. you know, the writer's surrogate and people are sort of jealous of almost like <sighs> his relationship with, and I'm just like, there's a lot of weirdness. And I'm not saying that that's everybody, but I just, I feel the weight of that weirdness when people can, talk about it can i push against the writer surrogate bit bit just a little bit mm-hmm. actually because so first off yes he is a writer surrogate and i don't think ellis even denies that i believe he acknowledges it um which lends some justification to that reading however as a writer as someone who's written not only comics but just fiction in general arguably according to hemingway all protagonists are writer surrogates that's what you're doing as a writer you are you are exploring your yourself in your work and ellis needs ellis because not because ellis is who ellis is but ellis because he is the writer of this book ellis claremont labdell whoever needs the freedom to explore their own ideas in 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 their work i'm okay with that i think that a lot of the uh, the problem with Pete Wisdom is that Kitty has a type and the type has never been who the readers want her to be with. If you are a Kitty Pride fan, you are, I mean, like like me and like any like any of us, you know, you you tend to be someone who is, you know, a nerdy comic book reader growing up and you want to see Kitty with you. So maybe you want to see her with 
with um with Cipher when he's alive and she doesn't want she doesn't want Doug. She wants the she wants the jockey football player Colossus. Or maybe you see her as a queer character, so you want her to be with Ilyana or Rachel, and she doesn't want that. That's not you know, she she sort of rejects that and she'll continue to reject it. Kitty's type is always who the readers don't want her to be. She goes from from Pete Rasputin to Pete Wisdom to fucking Star Lord Peter Quill. <laughs> <laughs> like literally, it's just one. It's like, oh, really? That guy is kind of what it's always been with Kitty, and the readers never want to accept it. But I just think she make continuous. I'm gonna put quotes around it. Bad decisions, but also. You know, maybe just her types, just not who the readers want her type to be. And I think that that's actually interesting. Like, I I like their relationship better than I like Kitty just being, oh, I married somebody and was happy and yay. Like, I don't necessarily want that for the character. I, I, I'd i rather see her struggle with not understanding why she's bad at relationships. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> go ahead. She's Eddie. very bad at no, no, you go ahead. Seriously, we always do this. Please just go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just going to say that um, I kind of read it in the same way we talked about the Kitty Peter relationship. I, I, I really Peter? like Kitty as a viewpoint character in terms. Peter you know, Colossus. Kitty, you uh, Rasputin. Kitty okay. is a viewpoint <laughs> character who, um, yeah, like a 13 year old girl exposed to this ultra muscly jock guy and forming a physical attraction to him. I really like that. To me, it gets creepy when Colossus reciprocates. So I think continuing that same model, you can actually read a continuity here because I also like the idea of a young girl thinking about or having trouble delineating boundaries in a friendship with a female character and questioning her own sexuality. That's interesting too. And then Pete Wisdom, I like as an extension of this, the idea of a, a very smart, good girl, so to speak, uh, who suddenly takes a romantic or physical interest in this snarling bad boy who she maybe thinks she can fix like these yeah. are terrible choices exactly as mav is saying but i like exploring kitty's terrible choices romantically just as mav is saying because i, I think there is something very universal and relatable there yeah and i i promised kate coker she could come back and talk about it and i believe we are going to talk to somebody else about it too who has a crush on pete but he is not <laughs> As much as we've talked about the great slash terribleness of him, he is not an uncrushable character, all right? Like, no, he is a no, character that a teen girl in 1995 might go for, and so we a, have to include that as part of the conversation. He's a brooding British boy in a trench coat. Like, he's literally, like, like close your eyes and pick up teenage crush like in the, in the 90s yeah. that's what he is he's like the reason constantine looks like that is because that's a that's a look it's a thing right like and i think pete wisdom is doing that and i think gambit's doing that it it's not weird that she's into pete wisdom and i should also just because i you know i don't want to keep mentioning it on the show over and over again so i'll say it today like uh, the other problem people have is that you, you're I think there's an inclination to to just want Kitty to be that 13 year old girl, and this Kitty is expressly not. Yeah, yeah, I mean it's complicated because it's almost like the fudginess about it is part of the problem in some respects right. when we're dealing with teenage female characters because they keep it fuzzy for reasons. So that can go both ways. Right. But, but like, she's definitely still... not 15. She's not. She's yeah, not yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. She's not in in high school in these books. Yeah. Like this is not like at. She's explicitly an adult. That's why Brian's like, yeah, you fly her to the, you fly him to the yeah. to London. Sure, I trust you. You know. In any case, though, I just like yeah, I want to give respect to that. That like you know, would I go for Pete? I'm not sure, but I can understand why Kitty in this situation 
would. I mean, he's this like mm-hmm. broody guy with like the floppy hair and angst and a mystery, and mm-hmm. he's taking you on a supernatural spy adventure and treating you like an adult and a partner and an equal, which Kitty hasn't had for a while in this book. And she's mm-hmm. lonely and bored, mm-hmm. and yeah, he's there, <laughs> you know, like. I get it. I think it's very human. <laughs> All right. I want to move to some final thoughts, but can I ask Dan, I'm going to put out one more Pete question to you. Like, is Kitty good for Pete? We've talked about some of the reasons that Pete might be good or bad for Kitty, but like, do you think that she's good for him? Does he experience good character growth through his relationship with her? Uh, yes, I would definitely say that Kitty is good for Pete. This gives him a a tether back to the real world is not the right phrase here. Reality, society, I don't know. Whatever I mean by what I'm trying to say. (laughs) You know, not to mention, you know, through Kitty, he starts to get in the good graces of the rest of the team, except Lockheed, but, you know, apologies for (laughs) for, uh, weeks from now for you guys. You know, yes, I mean, this relationship is happening at the right time in Pete's life whether it is or mm-hmm. isn't in kitties. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I mean, I don't think it plays as like one of those, like she's going to fix some things because that's not how the relationship plays out. But there is that sense of like, I don't know, when somebody who's a very like damaged person or damaged character, like realize that this, that, you know, they have this relationship with someone who's like fundamentally good and they can actually trust that person. And that's like really important for that kind of character. And that can be really interesting. So I don't, I don't hate that vibe to their relationship at all. Anyway, let's move to some final thoughts because I know we've been chatting for a while. I'm sure we've all got something to mention that we didn't get a chance to mention. So we'll go around and everybody can do one. Uh, Mav, did you have a final thought about this issue before we put it to bed? Yeah, this issue and last issue, because it was just we were running long last issue, so I didn't do it. Um, and I figured I'll talk about it next issue. Uh, the 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 logo changed again. It's um we we've we've entered a new Excalibur logo time, and it te- technically happened last issue. Oh, and yeah, I like this right. logo. Hmm. I like this logo a lot. Um, I like this logo yeah, a lot works. better than I liked the previous logo, which I did not care for. Um, which I believe I said when when it was adopted. I, I've never cared for the Discount Avengers logo, which they which they were doing for a while. Discount X Men. It was just very generic. Oh, Excalibur 3D, you know, running at you. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I never cared for it. I like what we're doing with this one. It it shares some DNA with the original logo, but it also yes. kind of shares some DNA with the with the X Men ness of it, with the circle around the X. So I get why they've done it. Mm-hmm. Like I'm 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 okay with it. Yeah. As soon as you mentioned it, and then I was looking at it, I was like, yeah that's why it's better because it's more similar to the old one whereas like the one that mm-hmm. they just kind of shoe here and in there didn't have that vibe totally agree the old one and again but also it, it like it feels like a nice merger of what the book is now the book is part what was excalibur and part wannabe third string x-men book i think it's still kind of in, on the fifth on the fifth string but mm-hmm. yeah but he's gonna work at trying to make it better andrew did you have a final thought about this one um yeah i'm, I'm gonna kind of like harp on something that i i mentioned last time i i still in this issue I'm, I'm uncomfortable and dismayed in the way that um ellis is using moira to foil pete and casting her in this kind of mrs trunchbull role uh this this boring authority whose coffee sucks and all that kind of stuff like it's it's minor it's not a huge issue it's just again i think moira is a really good character and especially at this point in her narrative she's literally dying at this point i i don't like it i I find it misogynistic and i can't help but reflect on ellis as a writer and what we kind of know about him now in the way that he essentially fridges moira to put pete over Ooh, yeah i sense 
sense that this is going to be a tough era for you with the portrayal of Moira Andrew. <laughs> I'm not sure how it's whether it's going to get better for you, but um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't have a really good final thought other than like the opening scene with Pete had a lot going on, and uh, I appreciated that it had had a lot going on. I am always fascinated when male characters don't have nipples. I think it's just such a <laughs> weird thing in comics the way they sometimes have them and they sometimes don't. I don't have a complex thought about it other than it reflects the weirdness of sexuality and gender in this space, but always an interest of mine. I should do a formal survey of it at some point. Uh, let's do some Claremont Runstock <laughs> oh, quantitative analysis. Yeah, <laughs> It'd be so fun, but not today. Um, Dan, do you have final thoughts about this issue before we before we conclude our conversation? Anything you want to add or circle back to? Uh, two things. So to Andrew's point, uh, it will get better for Moira after Pete gets injured in uh, issue 92. But uh, the other thing I wanted to say is that I wish, you know, over the course of, of this run, we actually got more time with uh, Pete's work friends in the pub. Mm. I, I do love that scene. And Jardine sticks around. He'll come back a couple times in a couple places. But, you know, it's just one last bit of praise for Larry Stroman. I love the sort of opening credits of Cheers aesthetic mm-hmm. that he brings to uh, <laughs> that one scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. The The bar folks were a fun time. The <laughs> Stroman's background characters really worked for me in that scene. All right, I'm going to do a letter real quick. Uh, <laughs> there is one letter that I was thinking of spotlighting, which is like basically a letter of like, don't make Nightcrawler too dark, keep him fun. And I thought that was really funny because that's like literally what Nightcrawler fans end up complaining about in every single era. It was like, we just want a fun character. Why are you trying to ruin this? (laughs) But anyway, I already tweeted that one out, so I'm going to spotlight a different one. So this one is from Elizabeth R. Milford, and she says... Dear Excaliburites, I should be working on my term paper right now, but I just had to write you a short note first. You see, I love it when Kitty kicks butt. It's so empowering to see this little woman who can take care of herself, no special powers required against the biggest, baddest nasties in the Marvel Universe. Blah, 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 blah. So thanks again for bringing her to us every month. I've got to get back to work now, so just one last thought. I keep hearing about how comic companies are trying to think of ways to attract more women readers. Well, it's capable, intelligent characters like Kitty and Storm and Jean Grey and Amanda Sefton and gee, most of of the ex-women who are going to attract and keep female readers. Hmm, maybe that's why the X-Books have so many women readers. And then the editor's response, which is from a woman, Suzanne Gaffney, is... X-Women are terrific, but you're sure hunks like Peter Rasputin, Logan, and Remy LeBeau have nothing to do with it, Elizabeth? <laughs> like, what are you doing, Suzanne? <laughs> Definitely it can be both things, but like, maybe maybe that wasn't no, the no, right no. thing to say no, in this particular No, no, instance. no, you're just, no, you're shallow. Sorry, Anna, you're shallow. All women are shallow. That's, that's, that's what Suzanne's telling us, apparently. <laughs> I know, I know. Anyway, I, I didn't know what to do with I... that one. <laughs> Well, my question with the letter is like just with with that particular letter, it's just that okay, it's so empowering to see Kitty kick butt, uh huh, uh huh, with no special powers, she can walk through walls. Yeah, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pretty special. Ninja. <laughs> she was doing like the ninja thing mostly without her powers, though, which we actually complained about. Yeah. So it yeah. could be two things. Yeah, no, I, I I get it, but I'm, but I'm just like, but even then, she's got a magic sword there. <laughs> like, there's a lot of. <laughs> 
like, I like. I mean, I like. I like that Kitty. Uh, I've always loved that Kitty retained her ninja training after Kitty Pride mm-hmm. and Wolverine. I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. It's just that, like, I don't think it's ever fair to say and no special powers when referring to Kitty Pride. She's a, you know, she's a ninja who can walk through walls and fly, and at that point had a magic sword. Like, it's not. <laughs> it's not nothing. Anyway, I think we can all agree this has been way too much talk about Kitty, and we should be talking about Gambit. <laughs> <laughs> he is dreamy. My king, I couldn't do it. Excalibur cannot be lost. Other men do as I command. One day, the king will come, and the sword will rise again. All right, we will wrap things up there. Other than to say, Dan, thank you so very much. Um, I think we pre-invited you to the podcast like a year ago, and I'm so happy <laughs> that we finally got to talk about Pete with you. Um, before we say our goodbyes, we need to remind our listeners of what you got up to. So if you would like people to find you online, where can they find you and where can they find all your writing and podcasts and projects? Uh, thank you so much. All right. So uh, you can find me at Twitter uh, on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote. You can find, uh, I host, a co-host, a uh, weekly comic creator interview podcast called WMQ&A. You can find that at comicsxf.com and also, of course, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, if you support the podcast at patreon.com slash WMQcomics, you also get access to my monthly Pete Wisdom bonus podcast, Our Son Pete. Just dropped an episode today where uh, noted comics critic Sarah Sentry and I talked about Excalibur number 98. So we're coming down to the end of the Alice era and uh, I'm stealing myself for the Rob, the Ben Rob stuff to come. (laughs) But um, yeah, those are all the important, those are all the important things. (laughs) Uh, Well, we'll link a bunch of stuff in the show notes and yeah, just thank you so much again, Dan. Thank you. Next, things will be heating up for both Pride and Wisdom and Wagner and Sefton and Excalibur number 89, Easy Tiger. Regardless on your mileage on any of those relationships, we do like talking about kissy times on this podcast, so it should be a fun one. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out the fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes, plus our holiday specials, which you can find via the Vox Popcast YouTube channel or our own website. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week into more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Mav, for another fabulous convo. Thank you, Dan, for breaking out the hot knives to help us. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thought Forum Music for a truly epic theme song. Play us out. We didn't even talk about hot knives. Just don't-